If you're gay, then you're gay. Don't pretend that you're straight. You could be who you are any day of the week. You are unlike the others, so strong and unique. We're all with you. If you're straight, well, that's great. You can help procreate and make gay little babies for the whole human race. Make a world we can live in where the one who you love's not an issue. Cause we're all somewhere in the middle. We're all just looking for love to change the world. Ah. And we're all here in it together. Thanks for tuning in, and welcome to IMRU Radio Magazine. The world's longest-running lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender radio show. Out front and out loud since 1974. I'm, I'm Vosh. Abby Dees, and that's... Who is that? And I'm that? Steve Prime. <laughs> I'm just so excited to be here with you, Abby. <laughs> I'm so excited to have well, you here. it's good to have you here. This is Abby Dees. <laughs> this is Steve Prime. <laughs> and, and that's Vosh Bodie. Yeah. I, I think I've heard of you. You did some sort of show on Saturday this week. Well, that's going to be coming up this show. We're going to hear a clip with Gabriel Maldonado from TrueEvolution.org. He is uh, part of a special broadcast that we did on Saturday. We're going to hear a clip from that later. And on it was show. called? It was called Outside the Box. Looking forward outside to that. Outside the Dream. Outside, outside the Box the is where you got burger. That's where I live. I live we're outside in, the box. This is outside the, the Dream. Right yes, Speaking of Edgy, you know, on Tuesday... In New York City, the police department, the FBI, and Homeland Security descended on a small tech company in the village that I actually had done an interview with. It was just there a bit ago. And we aired that tonight. They were called Rent Boy. All right. Wow. And still a little edgy, I'll be talking with Cleary Walters, who some have called the real Alex Voss. Well, she's putting the record straight, so to speak, in her new book called Out of Orange. But first, the national and international news from This Way Out. I'm Michael LeBeau. And I'm Wenzel Jones. With News Wrap, a summary of some of the news in or affecting LGBT communities around the world for the week ending August 29, 2015. A Senegalese LGBT rights group, Prudence, called for the immediate release this week of seven men arrested in July for homosexual acts. Two of them were actually having sex, but five men in another room had condoms and may have simply been guilty of intent, although that's not a crime in Senegal. All seven men were convicted and sentenced to six months in prison on August 21st. One member of the panel of judges reportedly told the defendants that there are acts that our society will never be ready to accept. Private consensual adult gay sex is punishable in the West African country by up to five years in prison and fines equivalent to $2,500. Jamal Bangora, president of Prudence, told the Associated Press that police raided a house in a suburb of the capital city of Dakar and arrested the seven men after the mother of one of them called authorities. We denounce this policing of people's lives and the attitude that they are criminal, he said. Human Rights Watch joined the local Senegalese group in denouncing what spokesperson Neela Goshal called the absurd convictions of the men and also called for their immediate release. Prudence and Human Rights Watch 
Each also called for a repeal of colonial-era Senegalese laws that criminalize same-gender sex. Sadly, Goschel said, these convictions reflect the Senegalese government's broader discrimination against the LGBT community. Julia Gillard vocally opposed marriage equality when she led Australia's Labour government as Prime Minister from 2010 to 2013. She voted against a bill in Parliament to open civil marriage to lesbian and gay couples in 2012, saying at the time her stance was based on a feminist view of the institution and that she preferred civil unions for all couples, both straight and gay. Gillard said this week, however, that the recent approval of marriage equality in other countries contributed to her change of heart on the issue. During her Michael Kirby lecture at Victoria University, named for the retired out Australian High Court Justice, she criticized the current coalition government of Liberal Party Prime Minister Tony Abbott, a staunch opponent of marriage equality, for voting earlier this month to require all its MPs to oppose any marriage equality bill in the current parliamentary session. Our nation, Gillard said, is not advantaged by anyone in the political class pleading their incapacity to be a decision-maker. The Abbott administration is proposing a national referendum or plebiscite on the issue instead. Some critics are calling Gillard's U-turn too little and, two years after losing the power to do anything about it, too late. But Australian marriage equality's Rodney Croom welcomed Gillard's belated endorsement of the cause. It shows that even the most high-profile opponents of marriage equality can open their hearts to the reform, he said, urging other political leaders not to wait until it is too late to show leadership in Parliament. Despite the U.S. Supreme Court's June marriage equality ruling, the Anti-Equality National Organization for Marriage is still making news. After a four-year legal battle, the organization has finally disclosed the list of its major donors who helped overturn the marriage equality law in Maine in a 2009 referendum. Marriage equality was later reinstated in the state at the ballot box in 2012. The Portland Press-Herald reported this week that the National Organization for Marriage listed seven donors who funneled a total of $2 million through the group to the overall $3 million Stand for Marriage Maine campaign. They all have ties to conservative Christian groups, although only one donor is actually from Maine. The Knights of Columbus donated $140,000. Equally Blessed, a coalition of Roman Catholic organizations that support marriage equality, reported that the church-affiliated fraternal group spent more than $6 million on a series of state campaigns against civil marriage equality between 2005 and 2012. While the National Organization for Marriage continues to tilt at windmills, reaction to the donor name disclosures from pro-equality groups involved in the 2009 Maine campaign was subdued, according to the newspaper, signaling what it called a drastically different political climate, and new priorities for LGBT advocates and opponents. In other news, the Pentagon indicated this week that the ban on U.S. military service by transgender personnel would be gone by May of next year. That's according to a draft document obtained by USA Today. The national newspaper cited a Defense Department official familiar with the issue, speaking anonymously, that Army and Air Force leaders know for sure of about 20 transgendered troops in each service. Gender dysphoria disqualifies them from service under current policy, but a de facto moratorium on dismissals was enacted in July by Defense Secretary Ash Carter when he ordered a six-month review of the issue. The memo reportedly details a list of concerns surrounding the service of openly transgender troops, including housing, uniforms, and physical fitness standards, as well as whether to allow transgender troops under medical treatment to take a sabbatical from service and return to the ranks after they've transitioned.
While a few U.S. LGBT military advocacy groups were hesitant to celebrate the news without further verification of the USA Today story, many others applauded the apparent Defense Department advance towards a more inclusive military. And finally, a U.S. Homeland Security raid on the offices of the New York-based RentBoy.com this week has drawn strong criticism from several LGBT advocates, organizations, other human rights groups, and even the New York Times. CEO Jeffrey Harant and six employees were arrested on prostitution-related charges on August 25th. In a brief media statement, Harant wondered why the government was coming after RentBoy.com after its 20 years in business. 20 years we've been doing it, and I don't think that we do anything to promote prostitution. I think we do good things for good people, and we bring good people together. And uh, I hope that uh, justice will be done in the end. The arrests raised the entire issue of the criminalization of sex work and sex workers. Ironically, Amnesty International went on record urging the repeal of all criminal laws against consensual adult sex work just days before the raid. The New York Times editorial board called the raid baffling. They have provided no reasonable justification for devoting significant resources, particularly from an agency charged with protecting America from terrorists, to shut down a company that provided sex workers with a safer alternative to streetwalking or relying on pimps. The criminal complaint is so saturated with sexually explicit details, they wrote on August 28th, it's hard not to interpret it as an indictment of gay men as being sexually promiscuous. What RentBoy.com does may be the very definition of victimless crime. Norm Kent, an attorney who's also the editor of South Florida Gay News, wrote in a strongly worded op-ed that the arrest should spark unified national outrage. RentBoy may be the world's largest gay prostitution site ever, he said but it is not a sex trafficking site where people are exploited against their will or abused by pimps or mercenaries. Activist and writer Dan Savage rhetorically asked on his blog when it had become the job of the U.S. Department of Homeland Security to protect gay and bi men from buying and selling blowjobs. That's News Wrap for the week ending August 29, 2015. Produced by Steve Pride, written by Greg Gordon, and recorded at the studios of KPFK Los Angeles. Follow the news in your area and around the world. An informed community is a strong community. News Wrap from This Way Out is brought to you by you. Help keep us on the air and in your ears at thiswayout.org, where you can also read the text of this newscast. For This Way Out, I'm Michael LeBeau. And I'm Wenzel Jones. You can hear all 30 minutes of This Way Out on free podcasts at thiswayout.org or on SoundCloud, Stitcher, or iTunes. So I'm guessing that you probably haven't heard the name Cleary Walters, but I'm also guessing that you've run into some version of her somewhere. There could have been Nora Jansen, a character in Piper Kerman's nonfiction memoir, Orange is the New Black, or maybe like some lesbians I know, you have a little crush on Alex Voss, the bespectacled rogue in the fictionalized TV series, also Orange is the New Black. But then maybe you know Cleary Walters, who is the woman I got to speak to just recently via Skype, who's written her own account of her experiences as a convicted drug smuggler in her new memoir, Out of Orange, Cleary Walters. The animals, the animals, trap, trap, trap till the cages fall. Is this as confusing to you as it is to me? Absolutely. I have no idea who I am. <laughs> no, it's not actually confusing. The further you get away from me, the more villainous I become. When you read Piper Kerman's book about her time with you as part of a, 
well, a drug conspiracy smuggling heroin, and then later on her life in prison. How did that strike you? Did that seem to be an accurate recreation of your memories, or was it very different? Well, my first reaction was indignation because she compared me to a a French bulldog or something. And then I realized quickly that she was actually changing my appearance. So I got past the insult very quickly and onto the story. I did not mind her depiction of me. I could sense that she was taking the reader on a journey with her, and I understood her journey. And her journey definitely started with wanting to drown me in a toilet and blaming me for everything that went wrong in her life, especially the going to prison part. More than anything, I was thrilled to see her get a book published that her experience would ultimately culminate into such a positive outcome. When you saw the TV show that was based on her book, did that at all ring true to you or did that seem even farther away? That was a weird experience. The character Alex Vaz couldn't possibly be farther from the truth in every way, shape, or form. But I could see myself in the character even still. Where did you see yourself? I saw myself in prison, for one, in those khakis, for another, and in the relationships between the prisoners and between the prisoners and the guards. That was something that I lived through and lived with for a very long time. So even a fictitious and lesbian bed-and-breakfast-esque depiction of that time was a bit nerve-wracking. It's like watching a nightmare. But you binge-watched it like the rest of us, it sounds like. Yeah, I did. (laughs) When all of this came out, and this, this suddenly became a big central part of our culture in many ways, prior to that, had you planned to write about your own experience, or had you wanted to sort of walk away from that? Well, I had always hoped to be a writer. I wrote three novels while I was in jail, but no, I never intended to make my own story public. In fact, the desire to keep my story from becoming public is why I never attempted to publish any of the novels that I had written previously, because it seemed likely that if those books ever did well, that it would come out why I was so well-versed in the material I had written about. Had you been keeping this part of your life secret? I was keeping it secret from my colleagues. When I got out of prison, I had planned on going back to San Francisco and back to the software industry in Silicon Valley, where I had a fairly well-established career. But as things turned out, I had to come back to Cincinnati, Ohio, to take care of my mother. And Cincinnati, Ohio is a a bit more conservative than San Francisco. I had to tell each employer that I applied with that I had been in prison and that I had a felony record because disclosure is a requirement of your supervised release. So it took me two years to finally find an employer that would hire me in spite of that ugly mark on my record. After having been hired, I did not, you know, sit around and revel in the salacious details of my dark and seedy past. So when the show came out, the first thing that occurred to me is, oh boy, this is going to be a hit. And it's a story that's based on a memoir. So when the fans become fans, they're going to do what fans do. They're going to dig for more details about the real people and guess who they're going to find. After I was done with my binge, I did a little ritual that I had done weekly for as long as I had been out and searched for my own name at Google. 
for as long as I'd been out, nothing ever came back. But within hours of the release of Orange is the New Black, when you searched my name, my mugshot was staring back at me. Let me make one thing clear. Being employed is also a condition of your supervised release. Anybody who gets out of prison and is on probation, on paper, on supervised release, any of these things, you leave with a deep-seated paranoia that something that you cannot control is going to be the thing that screws you up and gets you violated and sent back to prison. I figured if a crazy thing was going to come screw me up, it would certainly be this. (laughs) I decided to get in front of it and went into my boss the Monday after that horrifying weekend that I didn't sleep at all through and told her, you know, the book I told you about, well, it's a show now. Basically, I was preparing her for the fact that she was probably going to have to fire me. And when I said that, because I didn't want to get her in trouble and I didn't know if the company had the appetite for now housing a infamous lesbian drug smuggler having sex in everyone's living room is a bit different than just checking the felony box. But she laughed and assured me they weren't going to fire me and I broke it down into tears. Has this been a liberation for you of a kind? It's been an enormous liberation. I had absolutely no concept of really how heavy all of my secrets had become. But being thrown out into Front Street, so to speak, where I have no secrets left, and certainly after writing a memoir, I have no secrets left. It's, it's probably as liberating as when I came out. I want to talk a little bit about your relationship with Piper. In her book and in your book, if I may be honest, you both seem at times a little cagey about what your relationship was actually about. I just wanted to ask you, what did that relationship represent to you? A love affair that was interrupted. It could have been more, but it didn't have time to be more. She came to her senses, decided to get away from the whole drug smuggling gang clique that we were a part of and everything that it represented. But we had gotten an apartment together in San Francisco. She knew that I couldn't extricate myself quite as easily as she had done. The end game was that I would go to San Francisco and we would live happily ever after. That didn't happen. She left in the middle of one of your jobs, correct? Correct. And when did you see her next? In the Federal Transfer Center in Oklahoma City 12 years later. She was angry at you. (laughs) And she says that in her book, and you said that in your book. How did that strike you? She had a right to be angry. It's not an easy thing processing when you get thrown in jail and and you have to go through all of this stuff. It's really difficult owning up to your own guilt, owning up to your own culpability in your own life. And I had gone through the same struggle. I blamed everyone in the sun, you know, the agent who arrested me. Oh, it was his fault. I should have never trusted them. The basic, I did this, is really hard to get to. And I did give them her name. Never had an opportunity to sit down and explain to her, here's why I gave them your name. Here's what happened. If I had not done it, It would not have changed her fate. It would have changed mine, but it would not have had any positive or negative impact on her fate. But you made amends with her when you were at that transfer center. We had an opportunity to really discuss things. There's not much else to do in the MCC in Chicago other than play gin, rummy, watch CSI, and talk about why you shouldn't drown me in the toilet. (laughs) We resolved as best we could. And you've got time. 
So there is much more to that interview. And if you go check us out on Facebook, hit like first. And in the next 24, 48 hours, there is much more of this interview if you want to hear more. fascinating. Oh, it's really interesting stuff about life inside. Uh, Very, actually very moving. And if you want to learn more about Cleary Walters and her book, Out of Orange, just go to Cleary Walters, W-O-L-T-E-R-S dot com. Check her out. And still to come, my interview with his chief operating officer of the now seized website, rentboy.com. If you go there now, you just get some sort of governmental warning. We'll be right back. Well, and also, when we come back, there will be a clip. You and I are working. I'm so missing so so much. I know, right? I know. Uh, Still to come, we have a clip from our very special broadcast that we did this past Saturday called Outside the Dream, which was an exploration of homophobia within the black community. So we'll be back. On this day in history, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. August 31st, 2007, Sean Fritz and Tim McQuillan become the first gay couple to marry in Iowa. The day before, Polk County Judge Robert Hansen ruled that Iowa's 1998 Defense of Marriage Act violated the constitutional rights of due process and equal protection. While about 20 gay and lesbian couples applied the very next morning, Sean and Tim skipped the three-day waiting period by paying a $5 fee and securing a signed waiver by a judge. Later that morning, they sealed their union with a kiss. Within two hours, Judge Hansen stayed his own ruling. Fritz and McQuillan were the only gay couple to get married during the razor-thin window of opportunity. After their ceremony, Fritz said to his husband, quote, This is it. We're married. I love you. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded in the studios of WRIR in Richmond, Virginia and read by volunteers like me, Tom Miller. Hello, I'm Hawk Kincaid, former sex worker, current sex industry professional at rentboy.com and founder and president of hookonline.com. And you're listening to IMRU Radio Magazine on KPFK-FM, 90.7 Los Angeles, 98.7 Santa Barbara, 99.5 Ridgecrest, China Lake. 93.7 San Diego, or streaming online at kpfk.org. Even if there were homosexuals in our community, they would hide it. It is absolutely ridiculous for anyone to argue that you can have a homosexual man teaching black boys and that he's not going to be able to communicate that he's a homosexual to those boys. Comparing their genitals and their genetic power with those black men and feeling deficient by contrast. So that becomes a form of sexual expression. And by communicating that he is homosexual in some way, shape, form, or fashion, it's going to be propagating the life. The brain will start out of father hunger. Semen in mouth and semen in anus. That's the gastrointestinal tract. We didn't learn this freakish behavior in Africa. You cannot find brothers in Africa walking around with broken ribs. You don't find women in Africa running with women. We learned that behavior in our sojourn in America. So since we learned this behavior, we can unlearn this behavior. Some people look at your interpretation of these sexual behaviors and call you homophobic. No, I'm not homophobic. Not homophobic. Not homophobic.
Welcome back. You're listening to IMRU Radio. I am Steve Pride. I am Vosh Bodie. And I'm Abby Dees. I'm sure of it. And the time is 7.25. We all got that right. I am mm, so we did excited. It. Yeah, we introduced each other. Speaking of getting something right. Yeah, well, yeah. Saturday, we did get something right. Yes, we did. So what you heard uh, when we came back in from the break were clips of attitudes and things that were said on actually KPFK, but they are misinformation that you hear all over the place. So we were given the opportunity to actually respond to these homophobic remarks. How did you define homophobia when you went into this? Well, I defined homophobia as anything, any action, reaction, or statement that made uh, the group of that phobia or the object of that phobia feel less than fabulous. that you works know. for me. Well, I mean, if you think about a spider, you walk into a room. If you have a reaction to that spider that's negative, what would someone say about you? They would say that you are arachnophobic. Thank you. If you walked in and, and tried to kill it because you were afraid of it and didn't want to see it around, what would someone say you had? Arachnophobia. And if you were made statements and saying, I don't understand why spiders exist. They shouldn't be on the planet. They're just gross and icky. What You're would someone say? You're just a spider bigot. You have arachnophobia. So the issue is not whether or not someone fits into the category of homophobia. The issue is... What keeps them from getting beyond that right. and the things that they do to affect the communities around them? So that is where my definition came in. It sounds like a, that's a strong starting place. I thought it was. Well, anyway, we had a full hour. Uh, you can actually hear that full hour later, but we're just going to give you a clip. Here is Gabriel Maldonado and I talking about homophobia and its impact within the black community. This is Vosh Bodhi. You're listening to Outside the Dream, a show about homophobia within the black community. We were talking to Dr. Sylvia Rue about religion and sexuality. And now, Gabriel Maldonado, founder and executive director of True Evolution. Thank you so much for having me, by the way. I really appreciate it. So I am the executive director and CEO of True Evolution. We are an LGBT justice and HIV AIDS advocacy organization located in Riverside, California. Um, I also serve on the Presidential Advisory Council for HIV and AIDS, appointed by the U.S. Secretary of Health and Human Services. Um, And I'm just very, very uh, privileged to have these kinds of opportunities to work on behalf of black gay men um, locally and around the country. So since this show is about homophobia within the black community, what is going on with black people? Why are we in this place where we just don't love each other and work together? So I don't necessarily believe that. I don't think that we don't work together and that we don't love uh, love each other. Um, I think that how homophobia or how division shows up within our own communities differs depending on the context, the environment, the circumstances in which um, we're, we're contextualizing our communities. So, for instance, the Black Lives Matter movement has done amazing things. Started to, by... Started by lesbian women, right? right? Has done amazing things to kind of bridge this conversation between... Um, sexuality and gender. Now we see trans lives matter is a new hash is a big hashtag that's going around. LGBT lives matter, um, and it's just this notion of but that people of color, black people, matter, and whatever subgroups that we come from, or whatever subpopulations we may belong to, or whatever communities we may belong to within that, um, that we can come together and we can we can rally around the celebration of us as black people. I do want to point out that throughout, you know, especially recent civil rights history, uh, LGBTQ people have been really at the forefront of these actions. You know, Bayard Rustin organizing the 1961 March on Washington. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we had a, a, a black woman, actually trans man, really, who threw the first punch in Stonewall. 
And, you know, we have the three lesbians who started Black Lives Matter. Mm -hmm. But the fact that even within the black community, we have to then say gay Black Lives Matter or trans, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, shows that that distinction that there are certain people who are just trying to really say that being black and gay does not work for them. I mean, we all have to keep in mind that we are intersectional people, right? So I'm not just a black man. I am am an openly gay Afro-Latino who was born from a single mother um, who is living with HIV. I'm openly transparent about being HIV positive. So I'm an intersectional person with so many different facets and aspects to my life. Um, And so I think the reason why you see different types of movements uh, within the black community, so trans, black trans lives matter, black LGBT lives, black gay men lives matter. It's because it's speaking and it's calling upon the beauty um, of us being dynamic, intersectional, complicated, complex people. Um, and everybody just wants the total sum of their identities yeah. to be affirmed, celebrated, and validated. And so that's why we see that. Um, but but I see every day where we have straight allies um, who work very closely with us, even though we do have our own issues and divisions and divisiveness within our own community. Mm-hmm. But we also see that there is a, a capacity um, and a calling for us to come together. Um, and I do have the privilege to see that around the country. Um, but we could do better. You want to talk about some of the moments you're really proud of in your journey to be where you are? One of the things that I'm, I'm going to take away from my work in advocacy has really been my experiences with my life, my style. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a behavioral intervention um, that was created. It's homegrown, created by, uh, in the meantime, men's group under the leadership of their executive director, Jeffrey King, Um, And that experience working with black gay men in Los Angeles over the last two years for me has been one of the most empowering, enlightening, self-aware experience that I've ever had in my life. And just to have a closer connection to other black gay men through that behavioral intervention has truly changed my life. And it has informed every bit of the work that I do today. Talk about some of these costs of homophobia. So some of the costs of homophobia is um, that it uh, we lose our collective power as a people, right? Um, black votes are obviously already something that we struggle for. Disenfranchisement in the black community is, is at its highest. Um, how we so easily criminalize people and then in many parts of the South that they strip them of their ability to vote. So... Um, homophobia is just another instrument. I call it an instrument of white supremacy. Homophobia is an instrument that um, yanks our community apart from within. Um, and it propagandizes us into believing that we are somehow different and that we cannot come to a consensus on things, that we, that we can't come together, that there's a you and a them, you know, a me and a, and a, and a, and a them. Um, and it's othering. It's othering people. Larger, of course, homophobia is destructive and it rips communities apart. It rips families apart. It kicks young boys out on the street at 14 years old. It, in some parts of the world, homophobia shows up a lot worse with death squads and mm-hmm. corrective rape 
against mm. women. So it shows up even more violently right. in other countries. But for me, it's just an instrument that divides our community and creates division within the black community. Now, we know that there's a large number, a large percent of children who are homeless because they have come out and they're LGBT. Do you know what percentage of those children would be from the black community? Ooh, you know, I don't I don't know that statistic specifically within the black community, but I do know that uh, LGBT youth of color have significantly higher rates uh, of being homeless. They have significant higher rates of of sexual assault. They have significant higher rates of experiencing uh, uh, human trafficking, um, either survival sex or it's coercive. But LGBT youth of color um, are some of our most vulnerable, most vulnerable, most vulnerable and are. Black trans people are especially vulnerable, and they're being killed off in numbers that exceed statistically what they should be. We, I think we are just barely scratching the, the surface, surface on yeah. the conversation about black trans lives. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just amazing for people who really know the history of the black LGBT community. The black LGBT community was carried, carried by trans lives. Yes. Like carried by yeah. trans carried by trans lives. They were our our mothers. They were our fathers when we didn't have any. They were the ones who created our communities. They were the first people who were on the picket line for always, us. Always. Always. Um and so I think now we're just barely scratching the conversation about trans lives and the the invisibility that people have tried to place on the trans community. And so for me, I try not to speak on behalf because I am not trans, right? But I but I am here for my trans brothers and sisters and whatever I can do to to help facilitate a platform for them or to help just be that shoulder for them or to get the hell out of the way. Sometimes you just need to get up out of the way and just let them (laughs) let them let them advocate for themselves and whatever I can do to to be an instrument for that, I I totally um, uh, welcome. Why don't you give us the contact information for you and your organization so people can reach out to you? Sure. So if anyone wants to find us, they can go to our website. It's www.trueevolution.org, T-R-U-E-V-O-L-U-T-I-O-N, trueevolution.org. Well, I want to thank you for talking to me today. And We're about to hear from Omar Hassan, who is actually in Sometimes I'm right and I can be wrong. just listening to a clip from Outside the Dream, a very special broadcast that we were allowed to do here on KBFK to uh, define and establish and set a direction for homophobia. And I want to just give a shout out and a thank you to Leslie Radford, our general manager, for letting us Mm -hmm. do that. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's easy to sweep things under the rug, but she's like, let's address. Let's have some sort of counterpoint. I'm really really proud of you because I feel like what started as something very painful, a lot of those kinds of comments that we heard, you know, at the beginning of the show, um, instead of, like, getting mad, you know, we took it forward. We decided to present, uh, instead of rebutting some of those messages and statements, we decided to just give a voice to the black gay community so we could just say, look, this is who we are, this is where we come from, and this is what we want. Let's get together. 
Let's have unity. I hope this is the beginning of a lot more conversations like this through IMRU and everybody else. Well, next up, um, a while back I decided to do a series that I'm calling Sex Cells on sex workers, the sex industry, which is a big thing here in San Fernando, San Fernando Valley. Are we still in San Fernando Valley? I, I don't know. We're, we're on the edge. We're on the edge. We kind of are. But I started working on it about a week ago. I'd been gathering things for a while, and I started working on it. And I looked up, saw on the news that one of my subjects I was editing at the time had just been arrested in New York. Uh, the series includes, like, Wakefield Poole, the famous pornographer from the 70s, from uh, Colby Keller, a, a porn star, Boomer Banks, an escort, and the chief operating officer of rentboy.com, and that office was raided on Tuesday. Yes, it was, by national security. They just confiscated everything. Homeland Security, the FBI, and the police department, because these guys are dangerous, I guess. They have weapons of mass destruction somewhere. And I guess all somewhere. those guys didn't have anything better to do. Anyway, well, Homeland Security. So let's take a listen to that. My name is Hawking Cade. I am a former sex worker. I'm a current sex industry professional as COO of Redboy.com. And I'm president and founder of Hook Online, which is the nation's only nonprofit volunteer grassroots program for men in the sex industry. And that's been running since 1997. The actual story of my introduction to the business began back in college when I was working as an intern. I was working for free, like most interns do. I was very excited about the internship, but I was living with some family members who were very homophobic. It was around the time of Margaret Kammermeyer hearings, so it was around the don't ask, don't tell period. And it was a very aggressive, very negative household, and it was very clear that I was not welcome there. I'd come out around 17. I'd not necessarily come out to that part of the family, I think, for that reason. But it was very clear that it was a very uncomfortable household, and they made it increasingly more uncomfortable. So I ended up finding a place to live with one of the anchor's parents, strangely enough. And that was in downtown Seattle. During that time, I met a guy who introduced me to essentially body work. And that was the easiest thing to do, especially to make up for the fact that I wasn't getting paid for the internship. And I was trying to work a retail job on the weekend, which, you know, retail makes very little money. It was the first opportunity I had to make the kind of money I needed to live in a city. And then at the same time, uh, be able to do 60 hours of an internship. And that was when I was 19, 20. So I was young. And that was when pagers were big. And this is many, many years ago. I mean, this is back when we were paged. So your screening for clients was a little bit different than it is today. But it was the only way for me to be able to complete that experience. Otherwise, I would have had to go home. I mean, I think that was my biggest fear. And, you know, that's not nearly as dire as many people find themselves in when they sometimes start the business. But it was a practical decision. I'd already been doing an honors thesis on public sex. I was comfortable with sort of my sexual self. And so the introduction to the business, thankfully, had a good mentor and somebody who taught me about boundaries very early on. Hook Online is one of the best resources available for sex workers. So now you're the mentor. Hook's inception was a chance to create that mentorship in a way that more people could access. I think in the end, why Hook has been beneficial for many people who work in the industry is what I wish I would have had access to then, which is learning from stories that people had had about the good and the bad of the industry, the negotiations required in order to do the daily experiences, good client management, good client rapport, and then screening techniques and figuring out what I was and was not going to put myself into as a situation. 
I think when you're young and panicky, or at least new to the business, and you're not sure, especially when you're in a situation where you may be more vulnerable to decision making that doesn't have a perception of long term ramifications, I think you can very easily dismiss things that are obvious red flags. I was lucky, like many people, I think many men in the industry don't experience issues around violence. They don't experience a lot of issues that women and trans workers probably do confront on a much more frequent basis. Certainly it does happen. I mean, men do become the victims of sexual assault. They do become the victims of violence. But women and trans workers are oftentimes the focus of police attention. They're the focus of other people's attention. But there are certainly situations where men have been the victims of violence in all of its varying forms. I think what oftentimes affects men in the sex industry are other things and other factors and sometimes, oftentimes, self-destructive behaviors. And by that I mean There are people who really choose this industry and they do it well. It's a great career. They look at themselves as somebody who's going to be in it for a period of time, may not be forever, and they plan for it. They know what their limits are. They understand those boundaries. They're setting their needs in terms of health and medical and mental health ahead of everything else. So they're setting money aside for retirement. They're doing all the things that they're kind of going to do if this were a job because it is a job. And then there's another 90%, and the other 90% aren't thinking about the industry in the long term. It is a tourist industry sometimes. By tourist industry, I mean that people come in for a period, a short period of time. They have an immediate need or a perceived need. They'll join the industry for a period of time, and then they will leave. This isn't where they want to end up long term. And that's okay. I mean, that the industry is a great conduit to success for many, many people. But you have to think about it as a business. You have to think about it as something that you're going to make very practical, mature decisions about. It's not just a last-minute decision. And if you make last-minute decisions, it's much higher risk to make the mistakes. In my youth, I would have benefited from a program like Hook because it would have been an opportunity to learn more about the industry's practical matters, everything from money management to self-care, but also in terms of how clients can and could react, including the good ones. What was your biggest surprise when you first did sex work? how much of the time is spent in conversation and connection. I think people very easily forget that this is an emotional labor job. There are physical components, there's physical intimacy, if you want, among consenting adults, but the majority of what the client is paying for and paying you for your time is really that connection, and that connection can happen on many different levels, but oftentimes it ends up being through conversation, being somebody outside of their circle of support or their current daily life, and you are an exception to that daily life. That could include anything from role play and sort of the fantasy of the experience, or it can simply be somebody to talk to. I can't explain how many of my regular clients were friendships, like a bartender or a hairdresser or any other sort of service person that you come to see on a regular basis, you come to trust, but they're not in your inner circle of friends, like they're not the people that know you on a daily basis, that you're not responsible for, all of these kind of things. They are somebody outside of that that you can volley ideas off of. You're sort of free in some ways to express your own need for care, And that really became a big bulk of the industry. And I think that emotional labor component was surprisingly, at least for me in my experience, was surprisingly a big part of the job. You became the chief operating officer of Rent Boy back in 2014. These offices are beautiful. It's a very corporate environment, decidedly for-profit. How is Hook structured? Hook is a completely volunteer effort. It has been since 1997. I'm very lucky to have a board and volunteers throughout the country that have been committed to what it is that we do. It is a program that was created by, for, and about men in the sex industry. So for all of us, there was no model that really spoke to men. And so I reached out to a number of men who worked in the industry 
And I said, hey, you know, share your stories. It can be anonymous, can be signed, whatever. But go ahead and share your story so that other people can read them. And so when I took that online and I took that content and I just sort of put it out there in this very rudimentary way, not only was it the birth of my career as a user experience strategist, but it was also the chance for Hook to sort of get that information out to a wider audience and a receptive audience, people who were working from Omaha or Chicago or other cities where there just weren't opportunities to find that level of community. And so the response was really, really solid. And from there, through friends and through volunteers and through other things, we sort of have slowly developed different pieces of the program. You created Hook in 1997, nearly 17 years before you started working here. Was there always a synergy between Rent Boy and Hook? Rent Boy actually began around a similar time. Back then, there weren't many sites that you would go to. You would still do things like local gay magazines and print publications, you know, and then you'd list your pager number. But it had started, and certainly Rent Boy for Hook had been a partner early on, that there wasn't really another company interested in doing the kind of advocacy and education that Hook was doing. And so they were very early supporters. I'd worked with them for over a decade now just in the nonprofit and the sort of education component. Because most companies, they don't look at the people who either advertise with them or work with them, and I'm including most porn companies and all of that, historically have not done a lot of work around education or long-term benefit to their workers. Now, there are some exceptions to that rule, but by and large, uh, it's been an industry that was kind of a churn and burn. They would work for a long period of time or a short period of time, and then they would just disappear. And I think what I appreciated about Remboy, and, and like I said, there's certainly other companies that have done it, is that they've taken care or at least were interested in the life challenges and then also the choices that people who were advertising with them or working with them were making. And so there was an interest in making sure that they had more information about how to talk to a doctor. And there was more information about how, to, how do you build community among this population, among these guys who sometimes work in isolation. You know, in cities like New York, there's certainly a, a lot of men working here and, and you'd be hard pressed to throw a stone and find somebody who's not working in the industry. But not many people disclose it. And so even for all the public people who may speak about it, and we're very grateful, I'm very grateful for people who, all my volunteers who certainly speak about it and are comfortable speaking about it. I know Rent Boys is very proud of the people who are comfortable to talk about it. But for each one of those, there's hundreds and maybe thousands of men who aren't. Again, they're visiting the business. They are there for a short period of time, but if you ask them what they do, who they are, they are choreographers and they are students and they are... This is not the career that they themselves would internalize as being their long-term choice, and that's okay. The sex industry has long been a pathway to something else, whether it is to funding a business, paying off debt, making ends meet during a period of time that people are unemployed. It has always been that space. What Hook wants to do is really make sure that the people who are doing it for those reasons not only identify what those reasons are so they can also understand what their exit strategy looks like. What's enough if you're going to start a business or if you need enough to live on or you're working during an unemployed period that you have some sort of strategy in place as to what enough is and how many clients you're willing to take during that period of time. Or some people will continue on as part-time workers for decades. Rent Boy's slogan is money can't buy you love, but everything else is negotiable. How exactly does the website work? It's a classified site, so they pay to get listed, but of course to go view the profiles, anybody is welcome to do that. We do represent internationally, so Europe, obviously we have a very strong showing, and Asia and other places, so we do represent men all over the world. But again, as a classified site, we really are the conduit to creating that relationship, but we don't manage those relationships.
Do the police care about websites like Rimboy? Do the police care about, yes. I mean, if you ask, again, it, it's who's going to be the focus of attention and why. Our workers who are working in their homes, some social risk to the community, not at all. But if you were to look at San Francisco's recent law where they can penalize people who work within the sex industry and have them evicted from their apartments, if you want to look at the ways that they, again, can be fired and terminated from a position for no reason other than that they had worked for a sex industry business at some point, even if directly or indirectly, there are a, a number of, of risks as to where that attention is and then why. What harm does it really do for people who choose to work in the industry? I think one of the biggest challenges with that is that the very anti-prostitution movement, which has been around for many, many years and perceives the industry with that and, and sort of loads that industry up with the, the levels of stigma that, you know, women would never choose this industry. It's oftentimes very women and trans focused. I mean, again, men are not oftentimes the conversation here, but that this very anti-prostitution movement has been around for a long time. It assumes that all women who choose to work as strippers and nightclubs and all of these things that they do not do so of their own volition have elided with anti-trafficking movement and that language in order to push through an agenda and advance the stigma that really sits around the industry. But the reality is, is that they're two very different things. Trafficking is a problem. It is an identifiable, terrible injustice done to women, trans, and men, and children throughout the world, and certainly perpetrated here in the States. And the harsh reality that I think many of us in the advocacy movement are trying to explain to people who really do care about creating and moving forward anti-trafficking measures is that those of us who work within the sex industry as professionals by choice, who understand how the industry works, are one of the best defenses we have to fighting trafficking. Like we know when someone is not there of their own choice. We can recognize these things and we are happy to have them not be in the industry. We see that as an injustice. We do not support it. But we are caught in the crossfire of this elision. Like we are essentially caught at a point where people who want to discriminate against anyone who works in the sex industry because they themselves are either not comfortable with the sex industry for whatever reason, that they see this as a route to diminish all of the sex industry. Even though, I mean, you're never going to get rid of it. That sort of naive attempt to moralize people's behavior in that way, a way that it is inhuman in many cases. It's, again, it's, it's just grossly naive. But they want to use this as an opportunity to legislate away the sex industry by aligning trafficking and sex industry workers, people who really choose it as an adult to work within this industry. Speaking of people who choose it, what exactly is a rent boy? <laughs> what is a rent boy? A rent boy is uh, oftentimes an entrepreneur. They are someone who enjoys working as a male escort Within their own lives, they embrace their own sexual agency, their own vitality, their own personality. They have a great client rapport, and they are someone you want to spend time with. I mean, they're somebody that you enjoy spending time with on your own terms, on their terms. It's a beautiful thing in a lot of ways, and it's an arrangement and a behavior that's been around for a long time. It is a comfortable arrangement for all of our participants. And I think it can be beautiful. I mean, as somebody who used to work within the industry, I'm still friends with several of my clients. 
And I think a rempoi is somebody who embraces the fun, the playfulness, the joy, essentially, of working in this industry. And we have a lot of them. I mean, they like what they do. This has been just part of my conversation with Rentboy's chief operating officer and the founder of Hawk Online, Sean Lucas, also known in the industry as Hawk Kincaid. More to come. This is Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. Ten cents a dance. That's what they pay me. Gosh, how they weigh me down. Ten cents a dance Pansies and rough guys Tough guys who tear my gown Seven to midnight I hear drums Loudly the saxophone blows Well, the police were interested and they did arrest Hawk or Sean last Tuesday and I believe he's out now on bail. He has a lot more going on. He still continues with Hook Online, which is a major resource for people in the sex industry, as well as teaching extension classes in New York called Rent U, where you learn to do bookkeeping and save money for your retirement and develop an exit strategy if you want to get out of the industry, how to do it. And, you know, sometimes in the LGBT community, we forget that sex workers were at the core of our movement back in the day at the Compton Cafeteria at Stonewall. So don't get judging. I actually really appreciated the stuff, the difference between like the sex industry and the people in that and versus trafficking and how you really can't sort of push down the people in the sex industry without kind of losing a very important tool to fight trafficking. I never thought of it that way. I find the connection between or the the timing of the Ashley uh, Madison hack and this bust of Rent Boy, it just seems a little strange. I'm, I can't wait to hear what happens and if there are other sites that are mm. busted like Rent Boy. Well, that's a, that's a good question. There are hundreds of other sites. This is the most successful, but there are hundreds, both for females and males. And it was just this last year that Rent Boy had a float in the New York City Pride <laughs> Parade that the mayor and the chief of police participated in. So didn't they look behind them? Wow. Wow. <laughs> Anyway, that's the end of our ride. Gather your personal courage, take Tim and Politicos by the hand, and exit to the far left of the tram's forward motion. Our thanks to tonight's director, Michelle Marie Gilkison, coordinating producer Steve Pride, Rainbow Minute producers Judd Proctor and Brian Burns. And follow us on Facebook at IMRU Radio, where the link to the latest show is posted by noon every Tuesday, and lots of other really good stuff, like extra bits from the stories we shared with you today. Absolutely. And remember, you can support this station by using your cell phone. To donate to KPFK, just text KPFK to 20222. And that will give us $10, which we can use. There's a clock missing in the hall. I'm thinking, do we have to sell it to pay bills? We need every little penny hurt helps. We'll close with a song from the group Playing for Change. That kind of fits all of our guests tonight and their journeys. It's called Gimme Shelter. Good night. Good night. Oh, a storm is threatening my very life today. If I don't get some shelter, oh yes, I'm going to fade away. Children, it's just a shadow. It's just a shadow.
storm is threatening my very life today. If I don't get some shelter. 